The following is a presentation of Cornerstone Bible Church in Virginia Beach. For more information on Cornerstone, as well as additional sermon downloads, please visit cbcvirginia.com. I'm going to just take a few moments here. We're going to take a little break from our study of Mark due to our uh, observance of the Lord's table together this morning. And over the next few minutes, what I want to do is just draw your attention to just one aspect of significance uh, that is tied here to this act. And the passage I'm asking you to turn to here is known as the High Priestly Prayer of Jesus. It is the longest recorded prayer that we have of Jesus's here in the New Testament. It is uh, fascinating to read. I've always been fascinated by this ever since I became a believer. Very convicting. And we're not going to read the whole thing like we did last week where we spent, uh, I think, what, 15 minutes reading two and a half chapters of Mark together, which was unusual, but we're just going to read three verses together, verses 20 to 23, and then we're going to go to the Lord in prayer as we begin our time together. If you will look at John chapter 17, verse 20, Jesus prays these words, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you love me. Would you bow your heads for just a moment? Father, we come and we give this time to you. We ask that your spirit actively speak to us and meet with us this morning. We ask that you will make the words that we have just read your own prayer, Jesus, come alive to us today in perhaps a way we've never really thought of them before, so that we can see how we are supposed to live together as your church, as your people, as your followers, as those who have believed on you based on the testimony of these apostles. And so I pray, Lord, that through this time together, through this little challenge, and then our time together around your table, that you will build within us a sense of unity, of togetherness, of oneness, that will be a testimony to the world of the gospel, of its power, and of who you are, Jesus. And so we give you this time, we ask all those things, and ask your blessing on it, in Jesus' name, amen. When we... uh, Think about the Lord's table, which obviously we're going to be observing this morning. There's a a number of things that are significant about this moment. And typically, as we come to this time, we only focus on two of them in in any given normal kind of Sunday. And those two are the most obvious two because they're clearly stated in the text. It's the ideas of remembering and proclaiming. And so Jesus, for example, when he's telling the disciples that he wants them to continue doing this, he says, do this as often as you eat this, as often as you drink this in remembrance of me. And what he's discussing there is this importance, this need that we as his followers not forget the significance of what these elements here are supposed to be reminding us of, that as we eat the bread, as we crush it between our teeth, we are remembering the suffering of Jesus. As we drink the cup, we are remembering the blood that he had to shed in order for us to be made righteous in him, to have this new covenant brought to bear in our lives. And so as we eat, there's clearly the significance of remembering. 
But not only is there the significance of remembering, there's also the significance of proclaiming, right? Because that's what Paul says there in 1 Corinthians 11, that as we eat this bread and drink this cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until when? Until he comes again. And so as we're eating this, we're, we're proclaiming to everyone around us that, that this event is not the end itself. As if this is like the, the epitome of what God wanted us to do, to eat some bread and drink some juice or wine together. Like that's, that's the epitome there? No, that's not the epitome. The epitome is, is that in the suffering and death of our Lord, the, the cross is not the end of the story. It's actually the beginning because three days later he rises from the dead. He ascends to the Father's right hand and he promises that one day he's going to come again and we will eat this meal with him in eternity, right? We, we, I try to draw our attention to that every time we do this. That this is proclaiming that Jesus is coming back. And so you've got these two uh, obviously significant things that occur when we participate together in this act. But I want you to understand there are other things, too, that are significant about this act. And while I could focus on a number of them, I've decided just to, to focus on one this morning. And that is the unity and the oneness that is signified when we gather around this table together. You may not realize this, but it's because of disunity that Paul actually even addresses this issue in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. As he's writing to the Corinthian church there, he's writing to a church that is clearly not together. Okay, they are clearly acting in some very immature ways. They are, are fighting, there's contention, there's all this stuff going on. And one of the places where this has become very apparent is at this particular moment and in this particular act. There is disunity there. So, so in verse 18, Paul talks about the divisions that exist within the church. In verse 19, he calls them factions. And he says this is nowhere more evident than in how they observe this act together. He says, beginning in, in 1 Corinthians 11, verse 20, he says, When you come together, it's not the Lord's Supper that you eat. Apparently, they're calling it the Lord's Supper. But he's like, no, 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 listen. Whatever you're doing, it's not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. I, I don't know that he's being uh, for real with that. I think maybe he's using a little hyperbole, since we all know that word now. Uh, but I think he's, he's making the point that they're clearly, clearly not together on this, which is part of the point. Later in verse 33, he even has to tell them just to wait for one another in this act. And you read those kind of comments and those instructions, and you kind of get the sense that these seem like some childish, immature, immature things that this church is doing around this table. And guess what? <laughs> You're right. That's exactly what they are, some very childish, immature things. They are missing the very significant point of unity that this particular act is supposed to represent. Think, just think about it for a moment. One table, one table that we all gather around, one bread broken. One cup separated into a lot of little plastic cups for all the germaphobes in the room, right? So they're all coming from one source at least, right? So one bread, one cup. Uh, we wait for one another. We eat and drink together. Nobody gets more. Nobody gets less except for the little kids who hover like vultures at the end to eat what's remaining. And if you've never stayed in here to watch that, stay today. Uh, th- this, this table should be a visible, tangible reminder of the unity that we share with each other and with God through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. We are one in him and with him through the cross. And so I brought you to John 17, though, to show you that this issue of unity isn't just significant because of this table. It's actually important because it's just important to Jesus in general. 
if you look here in verse 20, as Jesus is praying, you note that he begins by saying, I do not ask for these only. And he's talking about the 11 apostles that are walking with him. This is after the, he's instituted this there in the upper room. They've left the upper room. They're now walking to Gethsemane. He's talking to them through chapters 14, 15, and 16. And we get to 17, and he begins to pray. And I don't know if this prayer, I've been wondering this of late uh, in our study of Mark, actually. I've been wondering if this prayer is part of what he prays in the garden. I don't know, or he's praying it on the way to the garden, one or the other, just by the timing of events. But, but it's him and the 11 apostles, they're all together, and he's praying for them specifically. But now in verse 20, he begins to change. He says, I don't ask just for these 11, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. Who's that? Us. Every single person outside of the 11 who have believed in Jesus have done so based on the testimony of these men. You recognize that? Whether it's their written testimony and what we call the New Testament, or it was their verbal testimony as they went out and spread the gospel through all all the earth as they knew it at that time. All of us are here today as a direct result of the testimony of these men. And Jesus is here praying for you and, and me personally. What exactly does he pray about for us? Note in verse 21, his prayer for us, all of us who believe in him through their word, is that we may all be one. Jesus here is praying for our unity, our togetherness, our oneness. And notice that it's not just any kind of unity as if maybe they would be unified around a a common ethnic heritage or a common social connection or a common uh, financial situation. Notice the specific kind of unity that he wants us to have. He says, I want them to be one just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may also be in us. He wants us to experience God-like unity. Trinity-like unity, perfect unity, perfect oneness. This is, this is Jesus' prayer for us. Note also then why he wants this perfect unity between all the believers who would come after these 11. It is so that the world may believe that you have sent me. There's a gospel purpose here. He, he says that, that when the church is unified with each other and, and, of course, then with God, the Father through Jesus, that that unity acts as a witness, as a testimony, as a, as a proof to the world around us that Jesus really is who and what he says he is. That the gospel is real, that it has real power. Because how else could you explain bringing together a whole bunch of really different people who are all sinners into one thing and that they would love one? I'm like, That wouldn't make any sense under any circumstance. And yet here Jesus recognizes that this unity gives proof to the gospel. If we are one, we prove that Jesus really is what he says he is. He goes on to say, verse 22, the glory you have given me, I've given to them. That they may be one even as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one. And again, note the purpose, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. Our unity, again, acts as proof that Jesus is who and what he says he is, but it's also proof that God is willing to love us like he loves his son. That's that's pretty powerful. 
if you stop and think about that, if you spend any time meditating on this, apparently the unity of believers, while clearly significant in this act here, is significant above and beyond this act. Apart from our time around this table, it's, it's critical because Jesus wants all of his followers to be united, to be one. Now, just pause and throw out a little encouragement to you at this point. You ever uh, tempted to become discouraged because you pray for something and you're like, God, please do this. And like three minutes later, it hasn't happened. And so you're like, does God even exist? Does he love me? Because we as Americans are nothing if not impatient, right? And we're like, oh, what's going on, God? Why won't you answer? The next time you're tempted to become discouraged about that, I want you to come back to John 17. I want you to read these verses again. And I want you to recognize that here is Jesus himself asking the Father for something that 2,000 years later still hasn't been realized. Sadly, but it still hasn't been done because his church is clearly not unified. Not by a long shot. And I'm not just talking about, you know, false churches, false believers that they say they, they know Jesus but don't. You know, these are people, churches we wouldn't have any kind of... Uh, of uh, fellowship with under any circumstances. Now, if somehow you could even take all of those churches, all of those people out of the equation somehow, and just look at those who are genuine believers in Jesus, we'd still be forced to say that there isn't unity within the church, right? I mean, we get this. We, we're not blind to what's around us. And do you want to know what I believe is the number one reason why there isn't unity in the church? Too bad. I'm telling you anyway. It's because of pride. I'm convinced, and I could be totally wrong, all right, it's just an opinion, but I'm convinced that the number one reason why Jesus' request here in John 17 is to this day unanswered is because of the pride of us. Not us specifically, I hope, but men and women, people in, in churches who call themselves believers and who genuinely are but are still, still bogged down by the sin of pride. I believe it's pride because they have at some point along the way in their understanding of what church is and what it's supposed to do, they have somewhere along the way forgotten whose kingdom they're building. Remember that from a couple weeks ago? They, they've quit trying to build the kingdom of God and they very much turn to try to build their own kingdom and they forget this because they become just too focused on themselves and what they're after and what they want. And that pride it leads to disunity. It separates, it divides. And I'll just give you two ways, two examples in which you see this at work in the church today. Now, one way is, and, and these aren't like exact, they're kind of fuzzy, but I think you'll understand the point. One way is when we begin to hold ourselves up as the perfect example that everyone else has to meet. Okay? We become our own standard of judging everyone around us. That happens at the individual level, does it not? It also happens at the church level. And so you'll have two churches that uh, believe the same gospel, they, they, they preach the same Christ, they teach from the same scriptures, and yet they don't want to have anything to do with each other because one of them plays a different musical instrument on Sunday morning than the other. And you know exactly what I'm talking about because we've come from that, many of us in this room. And it's, it's discouraging and, it's, and it's, it's something we don't want to get away from, or excuse me, we want to get away from. And, and I'll say to us, if I could, in a very what I felt was convicting way for myself, be careful that in your desire to get away from that, you don't become what you're running from. Because it's very easy as you try to get away from that to be like, well, I don't want anything to do with them because of how they are. What have you become? The very thing you said you're trying to get out of. 
We, 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 we turn things like that that are so minimal and we say, well, they're not like us. And so because they're not perfectly like us, we don't want anything to do with them. That happens uh, at the doctrinal level too. And there's some, there's some sense in which that can be right, but there's other senses in which that can be wrong. So you have two churches who, who believe the same gospel, preach the same Christ, teach from the same scriptures. They both believe Jesus is coming again. One thinks he's coming back early. One thinks he's coming back late. And now they won't talk to each other. And again, I get it. I get it. There's discernment that comes to play in all of that. There are some things that are significant, and I have said to you on numerous occasions and would repeat it again this morning for anyone who hasn't heard it, that unity is always dependent on agreement. It is. It just is. To the extent we have uh, agreement on something, we can have a great deal of unity. So I can have a lot of agreement with, you know, a Catholic church in the area that hates abortion. Guess what? I can unify with them around our hatred of abortion and fight abortion together comes to understanding of salvation, not so much, you know. Now our, our, our lack of agreement has caused a lack of unity. I can't go any further on that front with them. Do you, do you understand the point? I'm not saying we cast out discernment, but clearly not everything is of the same value. So churches separate from one another and don't exercise unity for, quite frankly, stupid reasons. The second way you see it is, uh, see it expressed, this pride expressed is in territorialism. Where, where churches begin to understand themselves as having little, like, you know, franchise rights to a certain part of town kind of thing. And if you don't think that happens, you're naive. But you, you will clearly see this where one church will ignore, shun, dislike another church just simply because they're, they're in the same market going after the same customers and each one wants to grow and they don't want the other one to grow because they want to grow, right? Because if people are going there, then they're not coming here and that's a problem. It's this, this market mentality that so many churches adopt without even realizing that they're doing it. They become more focused on growing their own kingdom than the kingdom of God. Folks, this is wrong. It is sinful pride. Both of these examples are sinful pride, and the church at large should be ashamed of itself. Well, we, we can't fix this. I'm not up here uh, <laughs> issuing a diatribe against the woes of society and then giving you, getting ready to give you some great plan to go make it all right. I wish I could, but I can't. We can't fix this for everyone, but we can do our part not to follow that same path as best we can. Not perfectly. I, I don't, wouldn't claim that under any circumstances, but best we can. And so over the last few years, we have been purposefully trying to build relationships with other churches here in Hampton Roads for these for the reasons I've just shared with you here briefly now. To, to try to selflessly put aside, and I'm not saying that to like backhanded give ourselves a compliment kind of way, like, to, but to put aside things that seem to separate other churches for the larger goal of reaching Hampton Roads with the gospel. And as we've done that, we, we've had various levels of, of success, and some churches are interested and others aren't. But what God has done is he's brought together a, a, a group of churches that are very like-minded. They're wrong on a lot of other things, but they were very like-minded. Sorry. Uh, very like-minded on, on really most things and that have put aside any sense of territorialism for the larger purpose of building, building the kingdom of God. And, and, and so what, we, what we've done is we've asked one of those churches to send a pastor to us today to do something in a real, tangible way that none of us have seen and I don't know if any of you have seen it before. Maybe you have, in which case, hey, praise the Lord. 
we wanted to ask another church to come and talk about themselves this morning because they're our partners in the gospel. And so we started with Redemption Church out in Chesapeake. A lot of you know uh, people from that church, your friends, neighbors with them. They've got some folks who live on this side of town. We've got folks who live on that side of town. So we've interacted with them on a lot of different levels. But we found that we're very like-minded with them. This isn't going anywhere, by the way, if you're expecting some weird ending to this. I I was thinking about how this is going to come across. I'm like, someone's going to be sitting there going, what are they about to do? Uh, We're not about to do anything. We're about to love another church enough to ask them to come and say to us, how is God working at your church? How is God working over there? So that we over here can rejoice with them and pray for them in really, really practical, tangible, real kind of ways. It's not enough, you know, think of James, right? It's not enough just to say we love the gospel going out and we don't care who gets the glory and we don't want our name to be known. We say those things. We got we to gotta put some feet to it. If we don't put feet to it, then they're just empty words. And so that's our, our goal today. And so, so here's what we've done this weekend. Last night, Jordan went over to their Saturday night service, and he did this for them. He, he shared Cornerstone with them so that they could know us, pray for us. Uh, this morning, Jared is over in their Sunday morning service. He's doing the same thing, sharing about Cornerstone, what God is doing here, so that they can be encouraged with the work of God and spread of the gospel in Hampton Roads with, through us. And then Nate Hill, one of their pastors, is over here. He's going to do the same for us. And so as Nate comes here in just a moment, listen to him as a, as a brother from another mother, another church, right? You're all thinking it, so I had to say it. Uh, as, a, as a dear brother, a pastor from one of these other churches in here in Hampton Roads, and we're going to keep doing this over the next few months. We're going to keep bringing uh, pastors, ministry leaders up here so that you can see that the gospel is bigger than Cornerstone. Okay. We don't care who gets credit. We don't care how it goes forth because we're not building our kingdom, right? Amen? We're building the kingdom of God, and so the God has a lot, of, a lot of tools in his toolkit. We're just one of them. So, Nate, will you come up, share a few things with us about what God is doing over at Redemption, so we can pray for you, and then Jordan will follow you when you're done. It's good to see you guys. It's good to see a lot of people that I know and have worked with in the past and gone to seminary with in the past, and... Uh, I was planning to come up here today and tell a few jokes about Jordan, um, but since I'm a horrible joke teller, I won't do that, and uh, hear that he's uh, the subject of many jokes anyway, but um, also I won't do what Jordan did last night where he came and said that he was uh, at our gathering to do some recon for you guys to see who he could take and how he could merge things, so I'm not here to do that either, um, but as Stacy said, uh, I'm just here to share with you a little bit about Redemption Church and First of all, I just want to say thank you to the elders. Thank you to you guys for having us in here. It really is a strange thing that's happening right now. Like, you don't see this churches saying, welcome, come share yourself, share what's going on there. You don't see that happen much. And, and I agree with, with Stacy that one of the biggest blights on our churches today, on American evangelicalism, is that the territorialism. And just by way of illustration, uh, this morning, Stacy walked out to our car as we pulled in and and he's like, yeah, he asked where I lived at. And I said, well, I live in South Norfolk. And he's like, oh, we have a group that meets in South Norfolk. And immediately I was like, what do you mean you have a group that meets in South Norfolk? Um, but I was like, oh, wait, let's think about why I'm actually here today. But, uh, but yeah, so a little bit about redemption. Uh, we have a long history. It goes back to the 1940s, actually. And I won't bore you with all of that today. But really what has happened there in the last several years, a revitalization started back in 2004, or you'd want to call it a replant 
that happened back in 2004, and then uh, through a series of events and things like that, as people argued about the red carpet and the orange pews and some of the things that we had going on there, uh, the Lord just really was doing a great work and brought us to a point in 2010 where we were able to set a lot of that stuff, put a lot of that behind us. We changed our name to Redemption Church and have been uh, on, a, I feel like, a good trajectory ever since that point. Um, but just uh, been neat to see what God has done there and neat to see what he's been doing through our partnership with you guys and with other churches here in the area. But I think if I was to describe our burden as a church, it's that we be living as a family of servant missionaries to bring about, to help affect gospel renewal in Hampton Road. And as uh, was mentioned, we firmly believe that we can't do that by ourselves. We believe that that has to happen as like-minded churches partner together as we we do what we can do together uh, to proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ. And um, another way that we're trying to do that as a church is through through spreading out. Um, we believe that God has not called us to build up bigger, but we believe that he's called us to spread out. And so that's one of the recent, we started up a, a new campus back in April uh, in Virginia Beach. Actually, it's four minutes from uh, Jordan's house, so hint, hint. Um, but started up a new campus there, and God is blessing that. It's slow, but uh, we're seeing some good things happen there. And another way that we see this gospel renewal happening is not just through a campus, but what we see happening first is we have a goal to see uh, 100 missional communities, community groups, uh, started throughout Hampton Roads. And as those groups form, as they grow, as they reach their neighborhoods and their workplaces, as those come together, then we, we love to see community gatherings, campuses, start up there. And that's exactly what happened in Virginia Beach. We had several people dra- traveling from a long ways away, and we wanted to serve them. We wanted to serve the community by starting a gathering that they could actually start inviting people to. It's kind of, kind of hard to invite people from 45 minutes away to, to come to one of your gatherings and, and to really get them incorporated into, into the life of the church. And so, again, obviously it's much bigger than a gathering, but uh, that was kind of our burden for doing that. And so, I guess as you guys think about us and as you, as you think and pray for us, I would just ask you to do pray for two things. Um, one of those is being this idea of gospel realization. We, we wholeheartedly, wholeheartedly believe that the gospel changes everything. The gospel is just not the ABCs of our salvation. It's the A to Z. Uh, all of life is for the gospel. And the gospel is for all of life. And so that's our burden for ourselves. I'm growing in that. Our people are growing in that. And uh, I know that that's your heartbeat as well. So pray for that. Um, and then also, just generally speaking, uh, pray for gospel renewal throughout Hampton Roads. There's, a, there's like 1.8 million people here. And I don't know if that includes the military or not, but there's a lot of people here, and there's a lot of work to be done. And so as we pray for you, we ask that you would do the same thing in, in praying for us. So guys, thank you for uh, letting us take a few minutes. It's been a, been a joy to be here. My name is Jordan. I'm here for the next few minutes to give you a few jokes for your repertoire, apparently. Um, I hope you heard, uh, as he was talking, you heard a lot of phrases and things that you hear around here, too, as we talk about what our vision is, what our heart is. So you can see, I think, even as you hear him talk, that, uh, as Stacy said, there's there's like-mindedness around doctrine, around the gospel, um, even around just philosophy and paradigm and what we want to see happen in Hampton Roads. And so that is that is exciting. I'm also here to announce that we actually have a goal of 150 community groups 
in Hampton Roads. So <clears throat> we will pray for you. Um, but uh, but yeah, uh, we we are, are thankful that as we sit in this room and think about when we leave here each week, when we send ourselves out to go into the world and to be light to the world, that that, that is a daunting task. Um, and yet to know that as we are right here, there are people, not just in redemption either, at another place to meet, but there are several, several good churches that are preaching the gospel and then saying, all right, guys, we are believers. Let's leave this place, not to just wait for next Sunday, but to now dig in and be messengers of the gospel um, until, we, until we meet again, and even as we are together throughout the week as well. So that is exciting. I want to just uh, pause for a moment. We'll transition here in a moment to, to uh, communion here, but let's pause for a moment, just take uh, an opportunity to pray for redemption and for this mission. <clears throat> God, we are thankful for the gospel for so many reasons. We're thankful for it in this way this morning, that it has brought us together under one people, one body, that Christ has made us his brothers and sisters, has made us your children. And so, even as you've taken us, the people in this room, from so many backgrounds, so many places, so many stories, you've brought us together where we fellowship with one another weekly and then throughout the week as we minister to one another and as we minister to our city, uh, we're thankful that we know that your kingdom is much bigger than this. And we're thankful for redemption uh, this morning and for what you're doing in them to help them realize the gospel for all of life as you are doing for us. I pray that it would continue, that it would grow, that as their understanding of the gospel and all that Jesus is to them uh, would just deepen then their unity together, their fellowship as a body, um, but that it would also then turn into seeing their vision come alive, their vision being your vision, God, to see people from every tribe, kindred, and nation, even as they live here in Hampton Roads, come to Christ. And so we're thankful that we can partner in that way. We're thankful for Nate being here this morning to share that with us. And so we ask for every single person that calls themselves a part of redemption this morning, uh, that your work and your plan in their lives would be done individually and collectively. And I pray that we would rejoice and be excited when we hear of missional communities of redemption in our own backyard, reaching their neighbors, reaching their coworkers, doing the same thing that we're wanting to see happen. Um, may we be thankful for this, rejoice in it, and play a part in seeing your kingdom come about. We thank you in Jesus' name.